Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. We'll read of a man who believed the gospel, lived of the gospel. It was not part of his life, it was. It became his very life, the very focus of his life. We're speaking of Paul. So Acts chapter 17 tonight, Thanksgiving in ancient Athens and modern America. Thanksgiving in ancient Athens and modern America. What do they have in common? Well, let's read tonight this text, and I believe we'll see a few things here in common tonight that I believe God has has intended for us that we might be encouraged and charged and challenged and helped as we would try to reach our fellow countrymen. And I'd like to use this message tonight to that end. And especially here at this Thanksgiving time. It's a sad thought to think that many observed Thanksgiving this past Thursday without having given thanks. And um, except to say thanks to some other person, but not, um, not to God. In fact, I'd almost like to ask somebody, so who are you thanking? Who are you thanking? I thought about calling the sermon, Thanksgiving to the Unknown God. Thanksgiving to the Unknown God. And sadly, that is the case in the majority of the lives of Americans. But that's why we're here. That's why, that's why we care. We're not belittling in any way, but it ought to be out of a heart of concern that would say, My soul, I pray that they might come to know. They must and they need to know. So did the Athenians. And so let's read of them in Acts 17 and beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens... 1716. Uh, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the, with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. Verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? And some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean, for all the Athenians... And strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with man's hands, though he, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And it's made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times of before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of, one, of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. 
For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, uh, graven by art or man's device. At the, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by, the man, by that man whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him, and believed. Among them was Dionysus the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thanksgiving in ancient Athens and modern America. May God bless the reading of his word. As you're seated, we'll get into the message here this evening. One of the most important classes I had the uh, privilege to take, though all contributed, I certainly would uh, say that one of the most important classes that I was able to take during Bible college was a class called Apologetics and World Religions. Now, it was the most challenging, probably, of all the classes. The professor, Greg Christopher, challenged us to think. That was not high on the priority list for college students. Thinking. He presented us with question after question after question and left us with not very many answers right up front in the early part of the semester. He wasn't trying to stump us. He wasn't trying to show how smart he was. He was not in any way trying to shake our faith. But he knew that we would confront a pluralistic society, a world that believed that all truth is created equal. I'm so glad he pushed us. He knew that we needed to be prepared. He knew that we would confront a world that did not share a biblical worldview. We spent the first part of the class defining terms. Pluralism, inclusivism, exclusivism, anything with an ism we defined it. So it seemed. We spent a lot of time doing such activities. He had an illustration, uh, just a simple cube. You know how you draw a square and then another square and then connect the lines to it? He used this cube like that to discuss four different parts of life as we share our faith and, and caused us to think about these sides to that. Common ground. How much common ground do we share with unbelievers? Is there complete, full, total common ground so that there's no difference between believers and unbelievers? Is there partial common ground between believers and unbelievers, or is there absolutely no common ground at all? He presented that question to us. Natural revelation, the fact that God created everything, can we use that? Should we use that in trying to win the lost? In terms of human reasoning, can people come to an understanding that God created the world? Human depravity. What do you believe about human depravity? And uh, the fact that man was in sin and dead in his trespasses and sin. 
And then the relationship between theology and apologetics. Are they separate? Uh, Are they separate disciplines? Do we have theology and then we have apologetics? Apologetics being uh, the art and science of defending the theological truths that we hold true, or are they intertwined? He spent a whole semester persecuting us. Persecuting us with these questions. He had us to read articles by uh, men that were not of our persuasion just to help us to, to be challenged in our thinking. And we read such an article by a man named Henry Smith who was from a southwestern uh, seminary. Not, not, uh, not that we would know this uh, individual or the seminary, but he used this article. And, and uh, I'm forgetting right now the title of the article, but I'll never forget some of the thoughts presented in it, such as this. God deals with people on the basis of their faith, response to the truth that they have. God considers the direction of a person's heart of ultimate importance, not the content of a person's theology. Just a matter of how their heart is. What's, what's their heart? God's more concerned about the sincerity of their belief whatever that belief might be. He said this, Henry Smith did, Why not rejoice that God, the Creator and Redeemer, has many and various ways of revealing Himself to people, whether or not they hear the gospel? You hear some dangerous thought. Pluralism says that all world religions, all faiths are totally equal and and all are viable. Inclusivism, which would be what Henry Smith would have been. I didn't know that at the time, but got to be modest because I didn't know that at the time. But he would be an inclusivist, which is a growing trend in evangelical circles. They say that God counts faith of all types as faith in Christ. That's to say that, um, yes, all men must trust Christ, but if a man is bowing before a, an idol or bowing before Buddha or, or in the beliefs of, of uh, Islam, then God still counts his faith and translates it, gives it grace, and translates it into faith in Christ. think surely there's not thinking out there. No, there's people with letters behind their name that's propagating such thought in seminaries and college room settings and coffee shops. What's our starting point? He asked us. Where do we begin? What's our starting point? What's going to be our approach to evangelism? How do you encounter? Maybe, maybe there's somebody right now you're, that's coming to your mind. They're very intellectual. They're very well-versed. Maybe they're very educated. They come from a law school. They come from some other type of background. And, and they seem very convincing in their arguments. And, they're, and they almost seem like they're untouchable with the gospel. Do you have to have another approach to approach them? What if you're dealing with an atheist? What if you're dealing with a Mormon? What if you're dealing with a Catholic? What if you're dealing with a Hindu? What if you're dealing with a Buddhist? What if you're dealing with someone in Islam? How do you approach all these world religions? Do you have to know everything about all the world religions to approach them? Paul confronted a pluralistic society. Very, very similar to our society. 
when he came to Athens. Not that other cultures were not like uh, that, that we've encountered thus far in the book of Acts, but there certainly is something different about Athens and its, and its ways. And so we're going to look at this tonight, and I believe what we'll see is that there definitely is some similarities between that cultural situation and our cultural situation, and what Paul's approach thus was should also be our approach. So I want to run that by you here tonight for our consideration because we've uh, considered here from the book of Acts some locations and places where people were biblically Ill, uh, illiterate and, and see we've seen how Paul has dealt with that in Lystra and Derby and different places and how he went to the synagogues, of course, and such as that. But when he came to Athens, he was dealing with an educated society, a cultured society, And what he saw stirred him, as what we see ought to really stir us today. Athens, the cradle, someone said the cradle of democracy. Athens, the native city of famous philosophers such as Socrates and Plato, the adopted home of Aristotle and Epicurus and Zeno, and a, a leading center of learning, this place called Athens, Greece. A great university city, and one individual put it as a great university city, and thus the gospel must encounter the challenge of Greek thought. Three things set the scene for Paul's message, as one man put it, the idolatry of the masses, and, and they had a multitude of idolatry. In fact, John Stott said they were submerged in idolatry. Reminded me of time in India and Sri Lanka as we saw virtually every mile, a, 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 there in Sri Lanka at least, every mile a Buddha stupa and, and then other uh, Hindu gods and goddesses and right along with that statues of Mary and other saints. I'm reminded uh, of uh, my time, op opportunity to be down in even Mexico City and to be in a place called Cholula. And Cholula is not a real large city, just south of Mexico City. But they had, I forget now the population, but they had a Catholic church for every day of the year. And every church had a bell. When they rang those bells, my friend, I'm telling you, it was something to hear. 365 churches, Catholic churches in this small, relatively small town. These people, the masses of Athens were steeped in, in idolatry, but then also alongside of that, and many times in contradiction to that, the value placed on knowledge by the philosophical schools that we'll learn about here tonight. And then most certainly a preoccupation of the Athenians with the latest ideas. They always wanted to hear something new, and, and I'm not going to go much into that tonight because Brother Wayne Hardy's already preached that message. And if you didn't get to have the opportunity to hear that on Tuesday night at the GIBF meeting, then really you need to listen to that sermon because the way the Athenians are and they're always wanting something new is very much our culture, even in the Christian realm. And, and thus the progressive movement has, has gained momentum because they're always looking for something new, something new, something new, something fresh and something new. But if you go down that road, my friend, there's no telling where you'll end up. I'm grieved today to see where certain schools have gone and where certain churches have gone, all because they wanted to do something new. Paul was stirred. The word means he was greatly upset. He was irritated. 
He was greatly stirred. He, he was passionate. Hey, listen, if you can't be passionate about God's glory and remain silent when you see that he's not glorified. So Paul was stirred. He was, uh, he was greatly upset. He was troubled by that which he saw as he waited for Silas and Timotheus to come and to join him in Athens. And he just took some time to watch and see their devotions. And he saw the gods and goddesses represented by the idols. And, and he heard the talk in the marketplace. And it, it, it stirred him up. Have you ever been stirred up? I believe there's certain things, my friend, that ought to stir us up, that ought to grieve us, that ought to alarm us, that ought to cause us to be passionate, of course, for the glory of God. He began his ministry in the synagogue as he did in other places, but then that ministry also went out into what's called the market, the agora, a place for trading and business. It was the center of public life, the public square, the hub of urban life. There it was at that time. In our time and our times, it might have been the public square back in uh, uh, days gone by in America. Maybe at one time in America was the mall, but many malls have begun to die off. And so now the, the hub of urban life maybe would be the coffee shop, the college classroom, and the Internet. A lot of ideas Shared there. Well, here in Athens, there were two schools of thought, two predominant schools of thought when it came to philosophy. There was a philosophy, the philosophical thinking of the Epicureans, and the main aim of their life was pleasure. The, but more than that, it was more so the absence of pain. They denied divine intervention in human life, and they especially denied divine retribution. They did not want to hear that the gods would take vengeance on people or they did not want to hear that man in any way was accountable to any god. And thus they really were against the idolatry of the day. They lived for pleasure. The Stoics lived for virtue and thus lived a very Stoic life as we get the terminology even in our own time. They lived in harmony with the natural world order. They thought of the divine being as the world soul and thus they were broad in their thinking. But I submit to you tonight that neither paganism in its idolatry nor philosophy had the solution for the plight of man's soul. That same is very true today. All around this world, idolatry is not meeting man's need, neither is philosophy meeting man's need. And thus Paul's sermon sets forth the truth about God and the truth about man and the truth about the coming judgment. They said, what will this babbler say? The word babbler means uh, a seed picker, one who would pick up seeds like birds, how they would gather different twigs and different seeds, and they would bring them all together. And thus, if you called a man a babbler, he was somebody that got some thought from here and then thought from here and then some other thought, religious thought from here and some philosophical thought from here, and he just brought it all together. There's a lot of them in America. Babblers. They referred to Paul as a babbler, just one who was setting forth, uh, and others called him a setter forth of strange gods because they pre he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They brought him there to the Areopagus, the, the council, the advisory council of Athens, and, and there in Mars Hill, as we read, and, and this was the council, the, the educated, the philosophers of the day and time that, that would regulate and, and that would evaluate things of ethics and culture and religious matters. And so they always wanted to hear something new, so why not bring one more set of 
teaching and doctrine in front of them. Paul began his address and uh, his address, and he said that they were very superstitious. They had gods and idols to everything. Wanted to make sure to cover all the bases. And just in case they missed one, they had an altar to the unknown God. Paul used that as a launching place for the gospel. Listen, my friend, don't misunderstand the, the passage to think that Paul was saying that they were ignorantly worshiping Christ. And thus it would be counted righteousness for them. Paul, listen, Paul was not in any way, shape, or form an inclusivist. He was not a pluralist. I submit to you tonight that if he was either of the two, he would have left them alone. Because their views were fine. And if they were worshiping the unknown God and, and, and it was Jesus that they were really worshiping, then he could have left them alone, but he did not leave them alone. He preached to them and, and, he, and he said to them that these basic truths, I mean, this is just foundational. It's as though he, he turned to Genesis 1-1 and said, God created the heavens and the earth. He did not try to prove God's existence. He presented God's existence. Listen, my friends, we don't have to prove God's existence. That burden is not on us to have arguments to prove God's existence. And thus, I'm submitting, I'm showing to you my ideas about this, that our apologetics and theology are not separate, but they're intertwined. And thus, we don't have to prove these truths before they pre we present them. We just present them. And thus, Charles Spurgeon said, the best way you can defend a lion is to let him out of the cage. He'll defend himself. The best way we can present the gospel is simply to present the gospel. He said, man did not make God, but rather God made man. He said, God does not dwell and made man, made, man made temples. And man doesn't supply God's needs as though God had any need. Rather, it's the other way around. God gives you life and breath and sustenance and the ability to move. He made man of one blood. He said, one blood, there's only one race, and that's the human race. You say, well, where did all the differences come in in terms of color and, and facial features and, and all that's different? Hey, we serve a God who's creative and created all men in Adam. And thus, after they procreated, then they were different. Look around tonight, God's creative. We don't all look the same, and that's a blessing. We have one common ancestor, Adam and Eve. We all trace our roots back to him and to them. And thus, listen, this makes so much sense, and this is so helpful to, to our worldview, that there is not a superior race. If we're all of one blood, then there's not one superior race. That thinking would have avoided what took place in Germany and other places of Africa and what has happened even within the within the within the boundaries of our own country. We are not superior. To another race. It would have deterred what took place in the Philippines and, and in China and other places during World War II. I'm telling you, there is no superior race because there's only one race, the human race. And thus, if all the human race, and we ought to treat each other with mutual respect. 
I love the verses there where it talks about how that God has set the seasons and, and where man, the bounds of their habitation in verse number 26. And God has determined man's times and God has determined man's geography. I believe this probably traces back to Daniel chapter 2 and how that, how that Daniel declared that God sets up kings and he removes kings. God, God allows certain people to have a measure of control of this portion of the earth. Not that he's behind the tyranny, not, behind, that, not that, that he's behind the evil, but he is so sovereignly controlled that he's allowed man to have a measure of free choice and control. But when God says, okay, that's enough, then that's enough. He set man's bounds. I believe that he set man's bounds so that man would not find his home down here, but so that he would realize, hey, you know, life is not about just what all is down here. There must be something more to it. And thus Paul said that man, uh, they seek after God, that they might feel after him. And, and yet, of course, we know that their, their search for God is hampered. And we know for sure that it is God that sought man, that not man that sought God. Paul is just simply making the point that they're groping in the darkness. They're spiritually blind. Have you ever tried to find something in the dark? Have you ever set your cell phone somewhere before you turn the light off? And then you go during the, during the night to try to find it without turning the light on? Have you ever done that? And you know that it's right there. You just know that it is. But at the moment, you can't even find the dresser. Or the chair. You forgot where the bed was. Then you turn on the light. Oh, there it is all the time. Hey, listen, God's been here all the time. And yet because man's in spiritual darkness and blindness, they grope after God and they can't find him, though they keep searching, they can't find him. Not that he's hiding from them, but it's, it's not an indictment against God, but rather it's an indication of the, the spiritual blindness of man's own heart. And thus man is totally depraved. His only hope is for somebody to come to that man with the gospel that the Holy Spirit of God might convict him of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come and help that individual to understand that he's a sinner and that there's no way he can be saved apart from Christ and thus to place faith in Jesus Christ, to be regenerated by the Spirit of God after repentance and faith, not the other way around, not regenerated so that he places, so that he repents and places faith in Christ. But this way, the preaching of the gospel, the work of the Spirit by way of conviction and illuminating the person so that they can understand the gospel so the person can, place, can repent and place faith in Christ and thus be born again. We should not, Paul, as Paul goes on, we should not think of, of God in an impersonal way since he created a personal man. And thus God calls men to repentance. A day has already been appointed. A day in which God will judge all men has already been appointed. It's already on the calendar. God's not going to move it. He's not going to reschedule it. I put things on my calendar and they move all over the place. I determined to do something on this day and have to postpone it and plan it for another day, but God will not. God cannot. He's already appointed a day and he's already appointed the judge. 
And Paul said, just so that you know that this is definitely going to happen, here's the validation of this. Here's the confirmation that he's already got the day set. In that, verse 31, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Paul said this, you're going to have to reckon with God because he's alive. You're going to have to reckon with this judge because he's alive. If he's dead, you don't have a thing to worry about. Epicureans, go ahead and live for pleasure. Stoics, go ahead and try to have virtue apart from God. If Jesus is still dead and in the grave, it really doesn't matter. But since he is alive, there's only one thing I can present to you, and that is Jesus and the resurrection as your only hope for salvation. Peterson said, if the resurrection of Jesus took place, it challenges human skepticism about the possibility of encountering God and being judged by him. It is the best proof we have of a general resurrection and makes Jesus the key figure. Thus, every man will stand someday before the judge who's ready to judge the quick and the dead. Well, at that point, they stop listening. Why? Well, the Epicureans didn't want to hear about a resurrection because that would mean they are accountable to God. I believe Paul was well on his way to fully delineating the terms of the gospel and the specifics of the gospel. But they said, okay, that's enough. We're done. See you. Some ridiculed. Some said, you know what, I'd like to hear that again. But thank God, some believed. You see, when Paul confronted a pluralistic society, he basically did two things. One, he established common ground. There's not complete common ground between a believer and unbeliever. You and I as saved individuals are not exactly like an unsaved individual. If, we were, if they were exactly like a believer or a saved individual, then what's the need for the gospel? The difference is the new birth. The fact that you've been born again. But we are not totally different then. It's not like we're from some different country or world. We are also sinners. And thus there's partial common ground. We share language. We share life experiences. We share the realities of life and death. And thus in many ways we are very, very similar. Similar enough that we could establish some common ground between us and an unbeliever. Enough to do one thing. Share without hesitation and with great confidence Jesus Christ. You see, our uh, apologetics and world religions teacher held us out there all semester long and basically brought us right back to where we started. I say that because I was already minded in my mind, I want to share the gospel with as many people as God allows me to share the gospel with. And I believe that's sufficient. He, for a moment, challenged my thinking to wonder... Is that sufficient or do I have to be able to articulate all these proofs to prove these presuppositions and, and to be able to, do, to know all these isms and such? Do I have to be really smart to win other people? 
Or is all I have to know just that Jesus died in my place because I was a sinner and he was buried and he rose again and that if I believe that, he'd save me. And if I trust that, I mean he'd save me and that that would be sufficient for my salvation. Is it really that simple when he brought me back to where I was as an eight-year-old, an eight-year-old? Believe in that same simple truth. It took him a whole semester to do what my second-grade teacher taught me early on. And thus I submit to you tonight that we, when we confront this society that is pluralistic in its thinking, that we can establish common ground and confidently point men to Jesus. What's your plan for reaching Jewish people? The gospel. What's your plan for reaching Catholics? The gospel. What's your plan? What's the Bible's plan for reaching Hindus and Muslims and the unchurched and atheists? The gospel. You say it's got to be more. It's got to be more than that. No. Wait a minute. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I don't have a power above that, my friend. All I've got to do is just share the gospel. I don't have to convince you tonight that we live in a very pluralistic society. The emerging church is demonstrating that. I have an article here, and I'm not going to take time to read all of it, but it's called this, Certain About Uncertainty. It's out of World Magazine this past October, and, and the author uh, is Janie Chinney, and she says, when the Apostle Paul found himself in Athens, he was distressed by the multiplicity of idols on display. The Athenians were eager to recognize all possible deities, even an unknown God, while offering sincere devotion to none of them. They like nothing better, Luke says, than to pick over trendy ideas on Mars Hill without coming to firm conclusions. The Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina is an echo of Mars Hill. It was a four-day music and spontaneous dancing talks and panel discussions attended by recovering fundamentalists, mainliners, evangelicals, evangelicals, agnostics, neo-pagan Christians, non-spiritual but not religious, and anything in between. That's here in America. Mostly from the emergent church movement. The emergent church, some, one of the individuals uh, stated as saying this, Thus saith the Lord is unnecessary baggage for the church that had better be dropped if they want to survive another century. Another of their adherents says this, Certainty, I want you to listen to carefully this because it, it betrays and illustrates what I'm trying to get across about many in America tonight. Certainty is the enemy of truth. He's saying this, that if you really want to find truth, you've got to leave certainty behind and then just kind of explore all realms and then eventually you'll come to truth. But if you explore all realms, it'll bring you back to one key doctrine of the Bible, that man's heart is desperately wicked and it's deceitful above all things. And who can know it? Well, the Lord tries the heart. And they're, they're saying this, there is no absolute truth. And I'd want to ask, are you absolutely sure about that? Because the Bible declares that there is absolute truth. 
And without absolute truth, my friend, we're just kind of floating around out here and, and everybody can believe whatever they want to believe. And I play my game, you play your game. I define my terms, you define your terms. It doesn't matter what people believe as long as they believe or if they don't believe, it doesn't matter. But I learned as a child early on that it does make a difference what you believe. She concludes the article by asking this question. What is truth? Asked Pilate. She quotes him, unaware that he was looking right at it as he looked at Jesus. Our confidence must be grounded in Christ, built on what we know of him from his own word. This kind of certainty is no enemy of truth. But remember, that truth will always make enemies. We have been called of God to preach an exclusive message of salvation in a very pluralistic thinking world. But we can't back away. We need to be stirred to action. I'm going to allow the uh, words of a fellow Oklahoman to uh, help us here tonight just momentarily. A man many of you know and listened to for many years, a man named Paul Harvey. April the 3rd, 1965, he aired this that I'm about to read. It's had several adaptions that he adapted and read at different times right up until his time on the radio was finished. It's called If I Were the Devil. If I were the devil, he said, and I certainly can't read it as he read it, by the way. There's only one Paul Harvey. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. And I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population. But I wouldn't be happy until I'd seize the ripest apple on the tree, thee. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd, I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with the campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make literature exciting so that everything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten television with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves, until each in its turn was, was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd mesmerize media fanning the, and, and I'd have me, mesmerizing media fanning the, fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage school, schools to refine young intellects, but neglect the discipline of emotions. Just let those run wild until before you knew it, you'd have to have dr drug sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. 
Soon I would evict God from the courthouse and then from the schoolhouse and then from houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors in abusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give the those, those who wanted until I killed the initiative of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I'd get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work and patriotism and moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned and that swinging is more fun. And then what you see on television is the way to be, and thus I could address you in public. and could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep doing what he's doing. Paul Harvey, good day. When I first heard those words, church, it stirred me. Because it certainly represents the America in which we live. I believe tonight that we must take action while there is time to act. We must establish common ground. We must be the most friendly church in Oklahoma City. We must confidently point men to Jesus. We must be willing to endure ridicule. Folks may misrepresent us. People may refuse to believe. But there will be some who will walk through these doors and say, that's what I needed to hear. An avowed infidel challenged a man named H.P. Hughes, to a debate. The preacher, who was head of a rescue mission in London, England, accepted the challenge with this condition, that he could bring 100 men and women who could tell what happened in their lives since they trusted Jesus as their Savior. The opponent never showed. I'm telling you, folks, this gospel is powerful. We can just share it with confidence that God will do the work and see people saved. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're invited to trust Him to save you, forgive you of your sin, and secure you a home in heaven. But I know tonight the majority of those to whom I'm preaching tonight are those who are like Paul, who may seem intimidated by the philosophers that take Mars Hills today. But just like Paul, we have no reason to back down. But just to stand boldly or to sit boldly across a cup of coffee with another individual in a coffee shop here in America somewhere. Or to stand in a college classroom or in a public high school or in a public workplace and boldly proclaim Jesus as the only way to salvation. Father, tonight, we share a burden for our America. As we have times here in Oklahoma City to go downtown and to interact with people, and as we go door to door, and as we invite co-workers and family members and friends and neighbors, 
Lord, no doubt we are speaking to people who have some way been influenced by the thinking of this world. Father, certainly the answer is not more education. The answer is not more religion. But God, tonight I believe the answer is squarely in who Jesus is and a relationship with Him. And so now I pray that you might help us to go into the world stirred tonight, concerned about the condition of our lost world, that we might present Jesus in a very clear fashion. Lord, I sure look forward to the opportunities that each of us have to share Christ by the gospel. Lord, help us not to complicate it. Help us just to just simply present the truth of the gospel and trust your work in the hearts of men, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.